Hi everyone, welcome back to my podcast. This is a true crime podcast. If you like this type of content, you have come to the right place. I am your host, Rachel. True crime is almost like telling a story, a true story, with real people and victims. So think of this podcast as a place to come and listen to a story. Sit back and relax and enjoy my story time. about halfway through my script Sunday evening. I like to have my script done by Monday so I can record and edit on Tuesday evenings and post Wednesday morning. So I just had to delete my entire script thus far because there was a huge break in the case. So I now will kind of work backwards, tell you the first big break because it's probably all over the news and your Facebook feed already. Then I will dive back into some detail that I had researched over the last. Okay, everyone. So the dynamic of this episode is going to be in sound a little different. I don't have a script. I'm going off. I just have laid out some topics I want to discuss. And I have a guest today. She happens to be one of my best friends. She may or may not live within walking distance from me, and she's only 28 years old and an attorney here in Colorado. So welcome to the cast, Cynthia. Hey, how are you? (laughs) So I think we should make this a regular thing, like a special segment just devoted to your expertise. I am an attorney, so clearly I love hearing my own voice, so I'm all about that. (laughs) Like we had this... We had pretty much this exact episode talk, like, what was that, Sunday, when we should have just been recording it Sunday, because we already went over everything into detail. So, (laughs) okay. So, of course, I must throw this little disclaimer out there. This is all going to be an open discussion, speculation, theories, and none of this whatsoever is legal advice, so don't yell at me. Seriously. (laughs) Always a good disclaimer. Mm Mm-hmm. So, first on the agenda to update you guys on is the press conference that took place, what is today, Tuesday? So, Monday, March 2nd, 2020, and that was held at noon Mountain Standard Time, so here in Colorado time, and they discussed the big break in the case, which was at approximately 8.04 a.m. 
um, Mountain Standard Time, so here in Colorado. Not sure what time zone that would be in South Carolina. They've got to be East Coast, right? Mm-hmm. So, would have been 6 a.m.? They're, what, 2? They might be 3 hours ahead of us. Oh, that is a rude mm. morning. <laughs> Knock at your door. I mean, she had to see it coming, right? <laughs> So, Letitia Stouck, the stepmother of Gannon, was arrested in Horry County, South Carolina, which I think she was actually in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So, Horry County must be where Myrtle Beach is. And um, she's originally from there, and I believe um, the pretty much the entire family was once from South Carolina. So she was charged with first-degree murder of a child under 12 years of age by a person in position of trust, child abuse resulting in death, tampering with a deceased human body, tampering with physical evidence. And they also released, um, they didn't go into detail, obviously, because this, this has really just begun, but... The evidence that they have has led them to believe that Gannon is no longer living. So let's back up. Um, So what exactly is the difference between first-degree murder and second-degree murder? And what does it... Does the sentence carry more time with the whole child under 12 years of age by a person in position of trust? So it's a complicated question. Um, First, if we're starting with first-degree murder versus second-degree murder, generally the difference is going to be if there's premeditation. Um, Obviously, there are lots of different factors that can go into what changes the length of the sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, But normally, kind of what everybody thinks about, if we're talking about first-degree murder, this is something that was premeditated. We're looking for something that shows, even for a split second, that this person was thinking about what they were doing before they actually acted. But when we're talking about first-degree murder with a victim that's under 12 in a position of trust, it's a little bit different. So first-degree murder, what we call after deliberation in Colorado, um, you have to prove that intent to cause the death of, of another person. But... Interestingly enough, when we're talking about children, we actually change the statute. So in Colorado, we have to prove instead um, that you knowingly cause the death of a child. So it's essentially a lower standard for the prosecution to prove Mm -hmm. simply because you have a more vulnerable victim. Absolutely. Huge benefit in terms of, um, from a prosecution standpoint, both first-degree murder with a victim under 12 in a position of trust and the more difficult to prove first degree murder after deliberation are both class one felonies. Mm-hmm. So the highest level felony we have in the state of Colorado. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at a sentence, um, that minimum sentence for a class one felony is a minimum of life. Should be. Maximum would be the death penalty, but that's kind of a whole nother situation in Colorado. Yeah. We're going to talk about that as well. I had read, you know, on some Gannon support groups online that they were speculating that they went ahead and charged her with first degree murder. And that is because 
oh gosh, how am I going to word this? How was it described? Um, because then it could be dropped to a lesser charge. Yeah. So one of the things that um, a lot of people may not understand or think about it, when you become an attorney, it is almost similar to watching Law and Order in the fact that there is a lot of strategy that goes into it. Obviously, prosecutors have an ethical obligation to only charge what they realistically think they're going to be able to prove. Right. Um, but you also understand that it is very unrealistic to expect you are not going to offer any type of you know, plea bargain in a case. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to leave yourself some room to offer something lesser mm -hmm. um, in the event that you don't end up taking a case to trial. Because Gannon's body has still not been recovered. Yeah, and no body murder cases are incredibly difficult. Um, they can be done, absolutely. Full disclosure, never been involved in one of those <laughs> body or no body murder cases. But it's a goal. Absolutely. That she able. wants to do before she's 30. So. And I guess I should clarify. Um, <laughs> being a prosecutor on a murder case, I don't really want to be involved in any other capacity. Um, but it, it can be done. Um, but I think they also have to, they being the prosecutors, look at what realistically can you prove when you don't have a body. Because you know her defense team is going to rally around that. Mm -hmm. So... That's almost yeah. kind of built-in reasonable doubt. So mm -hmm. the prosecutors have to work backwards and figure out. Well, how and I think this. ultimately the goal is to bring Gannon back home, whether Absolutely. that's just to lay him down to rest like he deserves. I mean, if if she has any remorse or soul left in her body, I mean, you are already caught red-handed. Give it up. And there have been cases where um, I know, particularly in Colorado, we have, we, meaning the state, has offered better plea deals with a specific condition that the accused person tell us where the body is. Mm -hmm. So if they were to offer her some kind of a deal, say, we'll drop it to second degree murder, if you give us where the location of the body is, would that then be life with the possibility of parole? It, so I'm only laughing because certainly I don't speak for um, Dan May or any of the district attorneys or deputy district attorneys working down there. But that's absolutely something that's always on the table. Mm -hmm. um, you have to make it advantageous enough for the accused person want to take the deal. Mm -hmm. um, but it also becomes a very difficult conversation to have with the family. Right. How much does closure mean to you? Mm -hmm. um, because you understand there have been some cases that get taken a trial with the understanding that not only could this person potentially be acquitted, right. but we may never know where right. your loved one is. Well, and I'm just hoping that they find him before then. Absolutely. I'm hoping that they are on her trail and are able to find him before they have to offer her a deal. Because, I mean, even though if you're given life with the possibility of parole, that's only possibility. Right. And I can tell you in terms of what um, the parole board looks for, they're definitely going to go back through the facts of the case. Mm -hmm. They get to hear from the victim's family. They get to look at what's the impact on the community if we let this person out. Yeah. So if she is not cooperative in terms of 
where is his body or what exactly mm-hmm. happened to him those could all be things that count against her being granted parole right right so um what about so child abuse resulting in death so that one was kind of goes hand in hand with my next question so they went ahead and obviously charged her with murder so they didn't release what they have but clearly they must have significant evidence to believe that he is dead so we don't know what that is we don't know if there was just an enormous amount of blood found we don't know if we don't even know if they have found him right they may have found him and just not released it yet right there was has also been some speculation on that but they must have something in order to charge her with murder so that goes hand in hand with the child abuse resulting in death so how do you i guess how do they say that it was child abuse resulting in death if that makes any sense how i'm wording that (laughs) yeah absolutely and one of the um interesting things about the way that the statutes are written i think everybody has an idea in their head of what these crimes look like but when you actually go through and read the language um that idea kind of changes so when we're talking about child abuse resulting in death um they don't necessarily have to prove that she physically did something to him um the colorado child abuse resulting in death statute is a little bit unique in the fact that it includes if she unreasonably placed him in a position where he could have um, gotten injured, where there could have been life-threatening situations, mm-hmm. if she engaged in a pattern of um, neglect or mal- malnourishment, mm-hmm. didn't get him proper medical care. Right. Now, everything that they are kind of saying about the case doesn't really allude that there's really any pattern here. But in theory, they could argue, based upon whatever evidence they have, that at minimum, she left him out here in the middle of winter, mm-hmm. maybe not appropriately dressed to mm-hmm. be gone for an extended amount of time, um, never followed up with him, mm-hmm. arguably didn't do maybe the, the reasonable things we would expect right. a parent to do. Right. So it's a little bit easier in the sense that they don't have to you know, prove that she beat him to the point where he right because i mean that almost made me question did because i mean without a body they don't know the cause of death so without the cause of death how do you know that it was abuse resulting in death and just not a crazy person just in a fit of rage which right and i think it also helps kind of play into a little bit of her theory um talking about how he got injured he had that cut on his foot Mm -hmm. so i would assume at some point they found some type of corroborating evidence some type of blood or something in that garage right um now it's possible maybe he really did cut his foot maybe he got an infection she also said that albert cut his finger off in the garage Right, so apparently this garage is a pretty and dangerous I, place to be. I keep forgetting, like, every time Al is on, like, doing an interview to, like, look and see if he's missing right. a finger. I mean, it's pretty like, easy to fact check. did you really lose a finger or not? Because if she's lying, that's pretty <laughs> out there. So it, it is possible that maybe they're they're playing into that. If if he got genuinely injured in, in an accident and then she didn't get him medical care, or she tried to cover it up, or Mm -hmm. if things kind of got out of hand from that point, um, 
it may not necessarily rise to that level that we're thinking of for that first degree murder, mm-hmm. but it might be encompassed when we're looking at that child abuse result. Right, like that. right. Yeah, so I'm kind of like interested to see what they come up with if if there was a pattern right. of abuse going on in the house or if Al knew of maybe any abuse or any certain way that she was treating the kids. Right, and um, I, I really don't know if we're going to hear much from him i think the family has done a pretty good job of staying silent they you know did make a couple of statements here and Mm -hmm. there but i think their main focus right now is helping the prosecution right that means pretty much staying out of the media right well and i mean i have to applaud for how they have handled it thus far because i feel like if that were my child and they went missing or got hurt in somebody else's care under, you know, such a circumstances as it's been, I feel like I wouldn't care at that point what happens to me or what consequences come next for me. I would be beating the answers out of you. <laughs> and that's just being honest. Absolutely. I have been in court and talked to victims or families of victims for much less severe charges who have reacted far worse than this family has Mm -hmm. so major kudos to them and their ability to Mm -hmm. hold everything together and kind of play the long game right well Landon even said that I mean every single thing that you know stops the search or the investigation that they have to deal with I mean that's just one more day wasted that they're not bringing Gannon home so all right so let's see Next was the tampering with the deceased human body and tampering with physical evidence. So does tampering with a body, does that fall under just moving the body, placing it somewhere, hidden, or does that mean that there was some kind of like mutilation done to the body? So in Colorado, it includes both. Um, So it could be as simple as... Obviously, the body is somewhere we haven't been able to find. So it could be as simple as her concealing it. But in more extreme cases, it can be um, if you're dismembering, if you are, you know, removing teeth or fingers, um, things that make it more difficult to mm-hmm. identify that person. Getting rid of it, literally. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And then tampering with the physical evidence. I don't know what physical evidence they had, but I'm sure tampering kind of just is cut and dry i mean there there was something that that she did or right um similar to the body they basically think there is some type of physical evidence she tried to conceal or move or alter in a way to make them think it wasn't related to this case um and they obviously think differently Mm -hmm. so again this hasn't been um confirmed by law enforcement but there has been rumor and speculation that in one of these searches, there was a two by four that was bloody found. And then Gannon's bloody sock was found. Um, and then she did actually admit to that two by four saying that it was from the garage, but who knows whose blood it could have been. I mean, he cut his foot in the garage that could have been from that. And that it was in the back of the pickup, so it probably just flew out of the back of the pickup. 
when really I think that she probably tossed it out the window. Oh, I'm sure. Which is really... I can't believe that with some of the allegations that they're making, especially as they match up with some of her unusual behavior, that she would just hold on to something that she thinks carries evidentiary value. Mm -hmm. She was trying to cover her tracks. Even if, given her the benefit of the doubt, even if she's not connected to his disappearance, she's definitely gone out of her way to make herself look like she's trying to hide something. Mm -hmm. Well, and she's leaving breadcrumbs. Right. She's literally leading them to what she really did. I mean, I think that there is a little bit of truth in every single lie that she tells. For most people, um, and that's kind of the way that they make it better in their heads. Um, Most people are not very good on the spot liars. So there's some type of truth, no matter how small, ingrained in every story that we tell people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because, I mean, okay, it comes down to the bloody sock and the two by four. Her defense is going to be, well, I told you he cut his foot and there was blood in the garage. And because he cut his foot, I mean, that could mean there was blood in the house. Who says that he didn't have a bloody nose? Right. So. There are also things that you would assume would be red flags. If there is a significant enough amount of blood that we now have it on a sock and a two by four, I think naturally the questions go, okay, well, did you seek medical attention for him? Right. If your child's bleeding that much, especially when, no offense, it's not your biological child Mm -hmm. um, and their biological parent is not in the state, mm-hmm. I'm going to want to make sure that I get that kid checked out and everything's fine. Right. So if we don't have those things, and where does that one come from? ends up on the side of the road. Right. Like 40 minutes from your house. You don't just carry those things around with you? <laughs> Apparently not. And they just fly out of your vehicle. I don't know. Your vehicle's <laughs> kind of unruly. It's possible. I mean, I don't know, but I've never... Um, had a two by four fly out of a like an open bed of a pickup even. I mean True. It's not that light. Right. So yeah, so with the evidence that Gannon is no longer living, um, there was some speculation that Al well because the the Metro Crime Lab have been at the home for gosh, I don't even know how long, um, in and out taking out evidence So I'm guessing that the home was probably the scene of the crime. And I say that because there was some speculation said that when the 2x4 and the sock were found, that Al had reached out to Tisha and asked her about it. And also they took Al through the house and had him kind of explain or point out um, different spots of blood that was found in the house. So I don't know if they ripped up the carpet and it was underneath. Um, But every house is going to have like some kind of blood found in it. I mean, we were humans, we bleed. But I think in this circumstance, any kind of blood found in the home is going to be in question. So they took Al supposedly into the house to try and see, you know, was that blood spot there? And they found a saucer size pool of blood in Gannon's room. So did he even make it to that Monday? 
I think is what everybody's questioning. I think that's a very fair question to ask. Um, Unfortunately, the only person who we know 100% could tell us is the prime suspect. So we have to base our speculation and the El Paso County Sheriff's Office has to base their investigation um, off of taking whatever truth they think they can gain from her, but also understand that it could be, you know, a day or two before or after she's really giving the information. Mm-hmm. So who knows? Mm-hmm. So let's go back to the video from the Sunday night before he was last supposedly last seen or when he was reported as a runaway. Um, it was the video of the candle. And in the video, you could see that the little sister, Lena, was home. She, I mean, there was a... This video was supposedly recorded on accident, which I don't see how you can can manage that. <clears throat> but um, Lena was seen in the video for a like split second, and she was in bed, um, and she had even asked Tisha what happened. Um, I am just thinking, how? I mean, did Lena? hear anything did she see anything was she questioned and supposedly harley the 17 year old daughter of tisha's was home she had supposedly gotten home around 4 30 that afternoon on monday and she was home probably around the same time when they supposedly had gotten back from the hike on sunday evening so i just want to know what what happened what was heard said done because i think that something had happened in that time frame the only thing that makes me hesitant i would think if more than one child was present when it actually happened what made her stop with gannon Mm -hmm. you would think if this was just kind of a fit of rage which is you know what a lot of people say that's a version that chris watts gave you Mm -hmm. know that you wouldn't be able to stop with just one child. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe I could see her rationalizing and saying she wasn't going to, you know, risk killing her own kid. Mm-hmm. One, because that's a biological connection. But right. two, she's so much older. Right. That's going to take a whole lot more work to subdue her than it's going to for, you know, elementary school age kids. Right. So I have to believe that his sister didn't know, didn't see anything. Um, but I can guarantee you, I'm sure she's been talked to. Mm-hmm. Now, the amount of information they may have tried to get out of her might have been limited. Um, I think you never want kids to shut down. Yeah, I think she's either eight or nine. I've heard both. So yeah. in that age range. And that's a difficult um, age range. And it's possible that even if she was there, um, maybe she didn't she wasn't fully paying attention. Mm-hmm. That's kind of that age range where <clears throat> they kind of live in their own world. So right. it's possible she was there, didn't see anything. Well, and I think the time stamp on the video was like some somewhere at like 1030 at night. I know that a, a lot of people were kind of raising a fuss about that. But um, yeah, so I'm just kind of curious as to when really this all panned out. Because I, I in my opinion, I don't think that that he made it to Monday because supposedly he was seen on Monday leaving with Tisha 
and right. not coming back with her. So that would have meant that if he was alive with her, wherever she went that day, that she would have had to do it outside of the home. Right. Now, kind of playing devil's advocate, if we go back to that child abuse resulting in death. Mm-hmm. If, let's say, something happened in the home where he was initially injured, mm-hmm. I guess it's possible, you know, he made it to Monday. Maybe she thought things were going okay. Mm-hmm. They go out and about, and then things take a turn for the worse. And right. she has to make a decision about what she's going to do with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I totally agree. It's risky behavior to kill anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly if you're going to do it out in public, if you have to improvise. Right. Um, normally you don't see that kind of behavior unless you're someone who has been, you know, a repeat killer who knows what they're doing. Right. You have a plan. You feel comfortable. Right. Um, so I can't imagine this being her first murder that she would take him out in public when you have the privacy of your own home. Exactly. And I mean, just to clarify, murder is like totally frowned upon. So Right, don't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> you will get caught. Okay, so she's being held in Horry County Jail, or as as we're recording, we kind of know where she's at now. But um, can you kind of go into detail as the hearing that she just had? I'm totally going to butcher it. Extradition? Extradition? Yeah, an extradition hearing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because you did it perfectly when we were not recording. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. Ex- extradited, which means like right. you're going to ship my Amazon Prime package like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, if you expedite something. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of, for, because I know you've got listeners outside of the U.S. Like everywhere. <laughs> so, <clears throat> one of the potential positives of living in the U.S., we have all these different states, and in theory, the way that it works, when we have serious crimes like this, when we get nationwide warrants, that those other states will agree to arrest the people so that way they don't just get to continue evading the law. Right. So in this case, she gets picked up um, in South Carolina. And basically what happens is the judge will bring her in, kind of like we saw in the video. Um, and I think I should mention, it was interesting as you were talking about, it didn't look like she was in a courtroom. She wasn't. In most places, um, even here where we live, Most of the time, they're not going to bring you up to the courtroom. Mm -hmm. They'll leave you in the jail, and you will actually video conference. Mm -hmm. The judge will be in the courtroom. Normally, you will have a prosecutor. You will also have a defense attorney. Sometimes, depending on schedule, those parties may not be available. um, But there are kind of that general layout. The judge, depending on the familiarity of what's going on, the judge may advise her, in general, of her legal and her constitutional rights. The video we watched was pretty short. Um, Doesn't really look like he did that. All he's really asking her for is, are you going to willingly go back to Colorado? So that's what we call if you waive extradition. Mm -hmm. She basically signs a sheet of paper and says, I am willing to go back to Colorado um, and kind of handle the legal proceedings here. Right. If she decided that she wanted to fight extradition, we have a whole separate process for that. And the judge does um, kind of detail that almost perfectly and succinct in that little video. Mm -hmm. Basically, um, she can contest the legality of her arrest. So she would remain in custody. The judge normally would set a bond. She would have the opportunity to post a bond, be out. 
But given the severity of the charges, the judge was very adamant that he would not let her out of jail. Mm-hmm. So she'd stay there. And the state of South Carolina would have 90 days to hold a hearing where they would have to prove to another judge, the attorney general's office would have to prove, um, she is the person that Colorado is looking for. Right. And that she is awaiting prosecution for felony charges in Colorado. Right. Very low standard. Once they prove that, the judge would say, okay, you've proven it. Now you're going back to Colorado. Take her. You ain't our mess. Right. right. Not our problem. <laughs> so it just helps ensure that people who flee the state are going to remain in custody or have some type of monitoring right. so we know where they are. Right. Well, and I love that he added to at the end after she had waived her right. her right to fight it, um, right. saying that she was going to just go ahead and go back to Colorado willingly. Um, I like how he added after that that, well, good, because really, I mean, whatever you do, I'm just going to hold you here anyways. Right. You know, <laughs> when you're dealing with not that, you know, any crime is acceptable, but when you're dealing with things like, you know, a drug possession charge or a motor vehicle theft, <clears throat> right. judges are going to look at that a little bit more differently right. than when you're facing first degree murder charges. Exactly. And I can't help but wonder, too, if she did that and went back to South Carolina for that reason, thinking that it was going to change things or it was just going to make things a little bit more difficult in terms of where they were going to find her. Um, Or maybe she knew it was coming. She went back home to where she was from and spent her maybe last few free days of her life. Those are very common things that we see, um, both of those reasons. Sometimes people think they're smart enough, we're not going to find you. Um, Maybe with lesser charges, it might have been more difficult to find her, Mm -hmm. but this was nationwide news. And we had people from Colorado go out there, too. Well, and for her, especially to go someplace where it's known she has ties... This was not a surprise that no. that's someplace she would have Well, been. and it just, like, makes you feel comfortable that, that they've been watching you since probably day one. Right. Nobody has dropped tabs on you. Right. And, you know, over the last week, we've all been saying, you know, why isn't she arrested yet? You know, we see all this evidence. We hear all of these things. We have all of these theories. Why don't they see it? Well, they know. They're just waiting for that one solid piece of evidence. And I think that they've had this ready for a while why they did it yesterday what they found out yesterday to finally have that smoking gun and go ahead and do it we don't know right and sometimes as unsatisfying as the answer is sometimes there isn't a smoking gun um i'm sure initially the thought was let's just focus on finding gannon Mm -hmm. Um, and then i think every day that that search goes on that you don't have him makes it a little bit more difficult for that family Right. And I know there have been plenty of pieces that talk about how thorough Dan May, the district attorney, is down in, in the Springs. And that's true. Um, no prosecutor ever wants to prematurely make an arrest. Because for all we know, maybe she was going to go back to the site where he was at. Right. You know, She could have led investigators back there. She might have slipped up and said something to someone. Um, so you want to kind no, of wait not it out. Tisha. Right, of course. She's kept her, right? she's kept her lips locked this entire time. You can't get two words out of her. I know. Steel <laughs> trap that one is. Well, and also too, um, speaking about keeping her lips shut, um, she also said in her hearing that she hasn't had the opportunity to contact her lawyer. 
And so the judge says, well, where's your lawyer? And she said, well, I have to call my friend so-and-so. Um, and it's like, well, which, I mean, if, if I'm just going to throw out theories here, you clearly must not be represented by a lawyer because you wouldn't have been blabbing your mouth this long and making it worse for you. And if you did have an attorney and you just got arrested, pretty sure he would be there. You would hope. Um, I, I know as a prosecutor, I'm supposed to not love defense attorneys, but I can tell you I've got some of them who are very near and dear to my heart. Um, sometimes, despite their best efforts, you can't control a client. So it's entirely possible she has one, and she's just kind of not listening to their directions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would find it surprising if she has a private attorney that they would miss an extradition hearing, that they wouldn't even call into the court or give a notification to say, hey, I have a conflict, um, because this is a pretty serious case. Absolutely. This is something you want to make sure people know that your client is represented um, and that you're taking her best interest at heart. Mm-hmm. On that note, I'm also incredibly surprised, given the charges, that we didn't at least have some type of representation by the public defender's office. Right. Now, we didn't hear that video from the DA's office either, so maybe they just didn't provide that information to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would be surprised that they couldn't dedicate one person to go in and talk to her from the public defender's office to say, this is how an extradition hearing works. Here are your options. Here's what I think is best for you. Right. So that way, at least if they can't be with her at the hearing, right. she understands what's happening before she gets advised. Right. Well, and by the time that you know, her hearing was aired, which was this morning sometime. Um, she had been in custody for probably over 24 hours at that point. She would have had one phone call, and clearly she didn't call a lawyer. You would hope. Now I can say we, we build the system to work perfectly, and it doesn't. Um, it's possible. Maybe she did try and call an attorney. Maybe... It took an incredibly long time to get her booked in. Maybe she hadn't had her one phone call. Um, I don't know. I just think it was, um, as a prosecutor, watching that hearing and not seeing a defense attorney was a huge concern for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, if there's ever a time we need to make sure we're protecting somebody's rights so that they understand what's happening, it's probably when you are arrested for the first-degree murder of a 12-year-old boy. Right. Yes. And I just love that, you know, there were, oh, I think an FBI agent from Colorado, somebody from the El Paso County Sheriff's Office that went, um, maybe one other person that flew to South Carolina and arrested her. So essentially South Carolina, what was that county? Um, Horry County, they would have had to been the ones to actually physically arrest her, but they were there. Absolutely. And part of the reason they were there is within hours of her extradition hearing, um, they started the transfer process of mm-hmm. her coming back to Colorado. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're keeping all those details um, under wraps. They have 20 days to get her back to Colorado. Um, but they want to make sure she doesn't have an opportunity to go anywhere. Nothing happens to her, and we can get her back here so we can get this case resolved. Right. So um, it was released that this morning, actually, she, well, I want to say it was like maybe like 
noon South Carolina time that she had already been on her merry way. Right. And they came out with a statement saying that they weren't going to say how or when right. she was going to be arrived back for safety reasons. Right. Um, so nobody really knows if they fly you back, if they drive you back, if they just put you on a cra- train. <laughs> Who knows? You would assume, given how much press coverage <clears throat> or press coverage there's been in this case, um, they'd want to go low-key. It makes mm-hmm. sense to fly out there. Um, just to get you there to make sure that everything goes smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if they take a more low-key way of coming back here. Um, or maybe if they change up the forms of transportation. Right. I'm looking right now to see exactly how far away South Carolina is. So where we're at, technically, we're about like an hour and a half, two hours difference to Colorado Springs, give or take. So it says that it would be... A 22-hour, 45-minute trip from South Carolina to where we're located right now. So, that's a long trip to drive with a fugitive. Right, and most of the time, um, if possible, they're not going to drive that whole thing straight through. Mm -hmm. That's part of the reason you bring more than one person with you. Mm -hmm. You can take shifts, you can kind of take your time and make sure you're getting there at a safe distance and time and speed and whatever. But they have 20 days to do it. I don't think they're going so they to stop with her. If they have to stop or get gas or go to a hotel, then, then what? She sleep in the next bed, handcuffed to the radiator? I would assume not. <laughs> um, but it, it's probably very locked down, which is why I think they would probably try and minimize any overnight stays. Mm-hmm. I would also suspect that they probably have some female law enforcement with Mm -hmm. with them so that way it's very likely she probably doesn't go to the bathroom by herself um that female i would assume would stay with her overnight uh those things to make sure we're keeping an eye on her but i don't think we quite go the direction that crime team lets us think right i would be very surprised if anybody had her handcuffed to anything other than (laughs) yeah maybe that oh crap bar in the car you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they still have to feed her along that trip. Right. So, I mean, right. yeah. You would think that it would just be easier to fly her back. But, I mean, I'm sure that the news and press are just waiting at the airport, hoping that they fly her in. But I mean, it's it's not unheard of that they couldn't, um, that they couldn't make some type of flight arrangement that mm-hmm. would have been... You know, low key. Maybe they spent most of the day in South Carolina, mm-hmm. thinking everybody thinks they're already on the road, and then right. maybe you take a red eye flight out. Right. Um, but you do risk being seen, being out in the open. Mm-hmm. You obviously have much less control if she's at an airport. Right. But right, it is always something they could do. Right. Are you a parent who loves thrift shopping but just can't find the time? on a budget, but really enjoys the idea of finding brand name clothes for your little one? Look no further than Do Life Thrift Boxes. That's do, as in two, and for less than the cost of two name brand outfits, Do Life Thrift Boxes will send you 10 pieces of clothing in the mail, ranging from 3T all the way up to teen. Do Life Thrift Boxes takes gently used kids' clothes and mails them directly to you, without all the hassle of going out, dragging your kids along, and thrifting for clothes. 
Do Life Thrift Boxes does all of the work for you. It's simple. You pick your style, your size, preferences, and boom, it's in the mail. Then your child gets a fun surprise, opening a box of 10 new to them pieces to try on and feel great in. Personalize your box. Warm outside, cold outside. Have Do Life send you summer or winter clothes and choose a combination of the two for guys and gals. Do you have a preference for colors? No blues, all green. Hate jeans but prefer sweats? Choose that too. Tons of different styles to choose from as well like that brand new back to school clothes look, or just some simple playtime gear and even athletic look, which I know can be pricey. But you know what? They're all the same cost at dolife.co. That's co, not com, because it's 2020 and that's how we roll. Our listeners are getting a special offer for 15% off with the code pocket, as in pocket full of grime. Head over to www.dolife.co again, not calm, and create your own box today. $150 plus in name brand, gently used kids clothing for only $49. Dolife.co. That's D-E-U-X life.co. This episode was sponsored by Leaner Creamer. Here at Leaner Creamer, we believe starting your day off healthy and lean with a cup of coffee. And our creamer is the best way to begin a healthy new chapter. Leaner Creamer is the realization that there is such a thing as a healthy, guilt-free coffee creamer. Combining natural coconut oil and functional supplements to keep your morning ritual lean. Our creamer is perfect for anybody with dietary restrictions or just trying to start a cleaner and healthier lifestyle. Our creamer is gluten-free, sugar-free, lactose-free, and contains natural supplements. We are the only all-natural powder creamer on the market. Not only does it taste creamy and flavorful, but it doesn't leave you feeling guilty after either. It's paleo and keto diet friendly, making it the perfect addition to any fitness and wellness routine. Even if you don't drink coffee, leaner creamer can be used in baking as a sugar substitute in tea, oatmeal, and so much more. It keeps your coffee hot and creamy as opposed to milk, which instantly cools down your coffee and dilutes its flavor. It's shelf stable for 18 months and is powder based, giving you creamy and amazing flavor with each sip. It can also be used as an aid in weight loss due to the natural supplements inside of it. For example, appetite suppression. It is coconut oil based and infused with natural herbal supplements that help boost metabolism. The only better for you natural coffee creamer. And the best part, it actually tastes really good. We are in over 7,000 stores nationwide so do yourself a favor and pick up a bottle today. But wait, there's more. There's also Leaner Me Coffee Plus Supplements. You can find this in light roast, medium roast, and dark roast, which is a great pair with Leaner Creamer. And to save money, they offer bundle deals. The only coffee that is able to and resulting in a sustained calorie burn. Functional supplements help boost metabolism and curb cravings. Smooth artisanal coffee, earth conscious and sustainable capsules. Created by using the highest quality beans, a superb roasting process, and an infusion of our proprietary all-natural blend of citrus orangium, 
Hoodia, and green tea extract, which works to increase metabolic rate and lipolysis, as well as mild appetite suppression. This as well is gluten-free, natural supplements, keto-friendly, and negative calories. Because of the supplements, you are essentially burning calories while drinking this. Zero sugar and compatible with Keurig Brew System. Make sure to use the link below. I have a promo code to include at checkout. It is CRIME15. Okay, so we kind of went into the plea deal. What do you think? Do you think it's going to go to trial? Or do you think that she'll plead guilty, give it up, and take what she can get? That I don't know. And the reason I say that is I think Colorado, like many states, is kind of in this weird limbo area. I know we kind of earlier briefly touched on the death penalty, um, but I think that's definitely going to be something that weighs in the back of her head mm-hmm. um, without going into you know, jumping the gun and right. starting that conversation. Um, I think there has to be some obvious benefit for her to take a deal, mm-hmm. especially when his body hasn't been found. Now, that's always this risky little dance they play mm-hmm. um, because at any moment, his body could be found, and I can tell you, probably the conversation that's going to happen in that DA's office when his body is found is, why do we need to give you a deal? We now have the physical evidence that we need. We can now 100% say that he is dead. Right. So what can we possibly get from you? Well, and they must have enough circumstantial evidence, enough to charge you. In case they don't find the body. Right. So, so we were talking about that on Sunday. Um, I would assume, of course, as we talked about, not having been involved in this case or any other murder case, I would assume they had to build their case upon the assumption of what if we never find his body? Because that's a very real possibility. Right. So they had to shore up their case in every other aspect to say, do we have enough to charge her if we never find him? Right. And apparently they do. Right. And then if they do have a trial, I mean, is there a possibility it would have to be moved outside of Colorado? Because this is this case has gotten so much media coverage. I mean, there are people, not just in Colorado, but everywhere that know and got so involved in this case. That is a very difficult thing to assess. And... The reason I say that is from a legal perspective, it's not just that there's media coverage. Um, In my opinion, in the years that I've been a prosecutor, I've never seen a case moved because there's been media coverage. Um, Essentially, what has to be proven is that not only has there been media coverage, but that the media coverage is so bad that it has now tainted the way any of these potential people could come in and listen to this case. One of the things that might be in the favor of the prosecution is the fact that it's kind of inflammatory anytime you have a 12-year-old boy who goes missing. Absolutely. You're going to evoke an emotional response right. from, I'd say, the majority of people. Right. Um, regardless of what county you're in. Mm-hmm. 
So if the defense were able to prove, and normally this is going to require a lot of legwork, um, people getting out from the defense team and talking to people in the community, um, doing surveys or questionnaires or even affidavits to prove there has been so much media coverage, there is no way she could get a fair trial right. in, in the 4th right. Judicial District. I don't know if they're at that point. <clears throat> right. Um, now, one of the things that will interestingly weigh into that is her own statements. Um, when someone voluntarily speaks to the media, when they engage with people on social media, how much of that is essentially the, the storm that they caused right. versus what kind of the outside community is causing. Right, well, and that would make it very difficult for jury selection, I think, is finding somebody, especially in Colorado or El Paso County, that hasn't heard about this case. And not just for media coverage, but just, I mean, it's everywhere. Right. So when we're looking at picking jurors, one of the things that we look at, especially in this type of case, you have to almost operate on the assumption Everyone has heard this case. We all have read the same news articles. And the difficult question that you have to ask your jurors is, they've done a really good job in the media of not telling us the details. Mm-hmm. We know bits and pieces and things right. that may or may not make sense. Right. But all those things are out of context. Right. So you have to ask your jurors, can you put that aside and make your decision based upon what you hear in court? Absolutely. Because what you hear in court may contradict what you read on Nine News or, you know, Colorado Public Radio. Mm -hmm. So if your jurors are not able to do that, then they don't get to sit. And I think that that goes back to why they have kept all of this on the down low. Why they're not letting anything get leaked. Because they don't want it to taint a trial. Right. And now it's, you know possibly coming up so and what a lot of people don't um think about is the fact that any trial is a production but when you are dealing with a case that has garnered national attention a case that is likely going to have a ton of witnesses deal with highly emotional subject matter Mm -hmm. these cases literally become a show in terms of you know you're going to be dealing with the media they want to come in and they want to publicize what's going on. Right. We watch things like um, the the Batman shooter case. Yes. That entire trial was publicized. Yes. Um, so there are things that every OJ single party, right? Every <laughs> single party involved has to think about and plan for, and how do those things impact whether she gets a fair trial? Right now, was Casey Anthony tried in the same state county that? That had happened. That is a good question. I can't remember I if she was or not. I can go and take a look. Um, but I don't know. I, I can't imagine they didn't attempt to try and move it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, again, you you face the same problems. Um, that is a case highly emotionally charged. Everybody was reading it. Mm-hmm. Your victim is going to garner a lot of sympathy. Right. I'm not sure there was any place she could have been tried where people didn't hear about it, where people wouldn't have been outraged by the allegations. Well, and she's still having to... I mean, she's still pretty much in hiding over it, so... Well, when people think 
You killed your toddler. That becomes a difficult thing. That to live would in probably life, or... be one of the jury or the trials that I wish that I could have just been a fly on the wall because I want to know what that jury seen or heard. So according to this article from Welsh.com, which looks like is a local news station, back from November of 2017, um, the trial judge decided not to move. Well, hold on. This is for her civil trial. (laughs) Sorry. Her civil trial. She could not get a change of venue. Um, So let's see here. I should always read past the first paragraph. You'd think I would know that by now. <laughs> but no. Um, so it does sound like, and I am not familiar with Florida at all, um, but she did go ahead and get a change of venue. Um, and the district court judge or the circuit court judge decided it was necessary because of the national attention the case had drawn and potentially tainted the jury pool for the specific Orlando area. Mm-hmm. So they did go ahead and they moved it into Clearwater, which apparently it's still in Florida, but apparently they believed given the distance, there was less prejudice of the jury. Right. Not sure in a practical matter if that changes a whole lot. Um, but they do the best they can. Right, right. Okay, so, and then, okay, was this, like, just recently that Colorado had just now passed that the death penalty is kind of, like, off the table now? So I'm so glad you brought this up. <laughs> so these are one of those moments when you realize lawyers really struggle having non-lawyer friends because we get really nerded out about <laughs> stuff like this. So, um... The death penalty has been a hot topic all across the country. Right. The moving trend right now um, is to go back to repealing the death penalty. In the United States, we went through this period of time where we had the death penalty, then a lot of states repealed it, and then for some reason, a lot of states decided to bring it back. Mm-hmm. So Colorado is one of those states. We currently have the death penalty. Um, it came back around... There are conflicting dates, um, but basically it looks like around the 1970s-ish. Well, because the first, yeah, the first case that I ever covered on this podcast, he got the death penalty and he did actually right. get put down like a dog. Right. Um, but I think that that was actually Colorado's last death penalty ever. So Gary Lee Davis was the last yes. person yes. Colorado executed, um, and that was 19... 19- 76. Oh, I'm so, I'm just so satisfied you remembered his name gotcha. because I was like, what is his name? Yeah. So he has been um, the first and only person Colorado has executed since reinstating the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So pretty big deal. Since then, um, and in the last couple of years, Colorado has attempted at least five or six times to again repeal the death penalty. A lot of that is, um, there's a lot of social issue with when the death penalty is used. Right. I think um, overall, not talking about every case, but overall um, social justice people are concerned that we use it more when we're talking about minorities than non-minority defendants. Right. So um, here recently, just within the last couple of months actually, there has been a push from the legislature in Colorado 
to go ahead and repeal the death penalty. Now, important, because as of, it looks like just a couple of weeks ago, kind of in the final stages here, Colorado decided in terms of the House of Representatives that they were going to pass this House bill. Mm -hmm. So it's believed that it's going to be signed by the governor any day now. If it goes into effect, the death penalty will be abolished in Colorado. However, it does have kind of a start date. So for anything charged or for circumstances that happen after July 1st, 2020, Hmm. that person would not be eligible for the death penalty. So I think that's interesting when we talk about charging and strategy in this case. Certainly, I don't think Dan May would have waited until July to make a charging decision here. Um, But by getting this case charged and having her arrested and bringing her back to Colorado well in advance of this potential death penalty being repealed, they leave open the opportunity that Dan May could seek the death penalty. Wow. Now, we talked about Colorado's only executed one person. Um, We also have to keep in mind, there are currently three men still on death row in Colorado. Right. Um, Do you know about, like, how long they've been on death row? A very long time. Or typically how long it takes for them to finally... So, death penalty, normally, at least as we've gotten, quote-unquote, more civilized, um, it's a long process. And a lot of that is because in most places, there are automatic appeals. Um, We basically operate on the assumption, if we are going to take a step as the state and execute someone, we need to make sure we got everything 100% correct. Right. So people can exhaust years or decades worth of appeals before we ever get to the point where an execution date is even set. Right. So our first death row inmate is Nathan Dunlap. This was, if you're from Colorado, this name should ring a bell. Um, It does ring a bell. This was the Chuck E. Cheese shooter. Shut up. Yeah. So just quick synopsis for anyone who doesn't know the case. Um, This is basically a disgruntled employee who was fired from a child's arcade and restaurant Chuck E. Cheese. Shitty pizza. Oh, I love their pizza. Granted, I haven't been back in far too long. You will seriously, like, don't go there. You'll catch, like, Ebola, syphilis, whatever. (laughs) That's not defamation, by the way. Chuck E. Cheese, she's just expressing a personal opinion. And I'm not sponsored. (laughs) So... Um, he was frustrated that he got fired. He basically waited one night, um, came in through a back door when he knew one of the other employees, um, would keep kind of the back door propped open while they were doing their closing duties, um, came in and basically annihilated, um, multiple employees who were still working there. No Um, kids. No, no kids. He waited until all of the children and their families were gone. Um, the sad part I think of it was... All of the employees, minus the on-duty manager, were all teenagers. Oh, They're all kids who man. had nothing to do with him being fired. Right. Um, just working a you know menial, you know minimum wage job, right. and they get executed. Oh. Um, so that is Mr. Dunlap, and let's see, he was convicted in 1993. 
um, for eight counts of murder. Now, in 2013, um, then-Governor John Hickenlooper granted a temporary reprieve for his execution, which essentially said he wasn't going to be executed while Hickenlooper was the governor. Since Jared Polis has taken over as the governor in Colorado, um, he has continued to honor that. There's no expectation that any of the remaining three men on death row are going to be executed. Well, you know that there's, you know, some conflicting opinions. Um, I honestly think that the worst punishment is to make them sit their entire remainder of their natural life in prison, make them wake up to the thought of what they did, make them go to sleep with the thought of what they did. And I think that ultimately that is the worst punishment. I feel like even though, you know, I'm not completely against the death penalty, I think that it's kind of the easy way out. There have been a lot of discussions about what is the better punishment. And I can, I think I can say the people who we want to feel remorse, absolutely. It, it's a better punishment to keep them alive, make them think about what they did. But I think we also have to accept there is a portion of that population, and I don't know how much it is, mm-hmm. who can't or won't feel remorse. Right. So that becomes an ineffective form right. of punishment. Right. Not necessarily saying executing people is the way to go. Um, it just becomes very complicated. And you look at how, depending on what you're in for or what you prefer, some people actually enjoy being on death row. You get your own cell in most places because wow. there's so few wow. people on death row. Um, you get more peace and quiet. Sometimes because there's few of them and they tend to be quote-unquote better behaved, you might get better privileges. Maybe you get access to books that general population doesn't. Right. So there are pros and cons to putting someone on death row. Right. Um, some people have openly said, I want to be in general population. I want to be able to, you know, get out of my cell more than one hour a day. Right. Right. Which isn't something you can do on death row. Right. So it becomes a complicated issue, especially when we start looking at Um, How many people have been exonerated via DNA when we look at, we executed people who shouldn't have been, Mm -hmm. and we only find out afterwards. So I think that's been a lot of the reason people have said, we may not know 100% whether or not someone committed a crime. So what gives us the right to take away their life? Right. Well, and just because... Yeah. (laughs) Please. Frankly. And... You know, I've been watching the um, trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix. And if you haven't watched it yet, just fast forward so you don't, so I don't ruin it for you. But the boyfriend of the mother who was one of the two that were convicted of his murder um, actually did get the death penalty. And so were they in California? Is that right? So somewhere in California, they actually have quite a big death row and they actually execute them quite frequently yeah california is a little bit unusual um i don't know if it's the size i don't know if it's you know size of the state 
whether it's the way the statutes are written. Um, California has a ton of prisoners. Mm-hmm. Um, some people claim it's just a lot of gang violence, um, which is true. They have a ton of, you know, if you watch Gangland or any of those specials on, you know, A&E or Oxygen, they talk a lot about kind of the gang connections and... Cops. Right. San Quentin. <laughs> like, these are just big... That's where it was. That's where it was. San Quentin. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're just big, big names for when we're dealing with um, criminals. But California gets a ton of them. They're not um, necessarily afraid to use the death penalty, which is interesting because I think most people, at least now, view California as a very liberal state. I was just about to say that. These are very... I mean, compare it to Texas, who also right. has the death penalty still. Right. Republicans Fair. everywhere. So, so it's, it's an interesting um, contrast. We see that normally where you stand on the death penalty may not necessarily align so much with your political party. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are the exceptions, you know, people who say, you know, the state shouldn't be involved in deciding whether you live or die regardless. Right. Um, but I think it's an interesting, complex moral issue and then if you add religion, and then you add politics, it becomes a complex issue. Well, and even if it wasn't up to the state, and it was up to, say, a jury. Right. I mean, there's going to be complications where, I mean, they're just deadlocked on some think yes, some think no. Right. And I don't think that there's any swaying. Right. Well, and it's it becomes a big decision. Um, so for the Batman shooting case... Um, DA George Brockler spent a lot of time building a strategy in terms of you have to identify from the outset of your trial when you're picking your jurors, are you picking someone who is adamant that they would never sentence someone to death? Mm -hmm. And ultimately, at the end of that trial, um, James Holmes did not end up getting the death penalty um, because three jurors were adamant that they could not be convinced based upon the prosecution's evidence mm-hmm. that he deserved to be executed. And it only takes that one juror to right. Right. spare just like, somebody's life. Just like the verdict, it has to be a unanimous decision. Right. Um, and so if you're dealing with somebody who says, I understand this is horrible and I, I'm not necessarily advocating for the death penalty, but having watched that trial, having listened to the victims come in and cry and talk about the people that they lost. I felt if there was a case they were going to return, you know, the death penalty, that would have been it. I thought so too. And it wasn't. So maybe that's showing a change in how we view things societally. And Chris Watts. But he took the deal, so. Right. See, and that's how we talk about, you know, sometimes the death penalty is an effective bargaining chip. Mm -hmm. Um, Apparently for Chris Watts, even though he knew they hadn't executed anybody since the 70s, um, it was enough of an incentive for him to say, I will go ahead and I will plead on the condition that you do not execute me. Right. So at least for now, it's still a bargaining chip that district attorneys have. And, And overall, I think we use it pretty sparingly. We use it when it's appropriate. So it'll be interesting to see what Dan May and his office decides to do with this. Yeah, I'm I'm anxious to see if, if she'll take a deal or not and go to trial. That's one that I would love to 
be a fly on the wall. Well, I've told you, let me know. Um, obviously, any court dates, I mean, assuming they don't have a closed courtroom or gag orders, um, court dates are public knowledge. So that's always something I can give you a heads up on if you ever want to go spend a day and listen right. to what's happening. Absolutely. So um, just real quick, I wanted to touch base on some of the new evidence, I guess, or speculation or updates that I guess have come out since last week's episode. Um, so last week's episode, we didn't know if in fact she did rent a car. It was kind of just speculation at that point. Um, and it was proven that she did rent a car, but she rented the car January 28th, which would have been the Tuesday after he supposedly had ran away and she rented it in her name. It was through gosh, budget rentals. And she picked it up from the Colorado Springs airport. So Al, on his trip to Oklahoma for his work trip, he flew out of DIA, but then when he came back, he flew into Colorado Springs, which is only like, I think I did the math, I think it's seven miles from their home in Colorado Springs. So she picked that car up at 8.30 a.m., but his flight supposedly didn't land until between 11.30 and 12.30. So whatever she did in that amount of time, nobody knows. So why did she rent the car? Well, her theory was that they were going to go door to door looking for Gannon. And since she believed that he ran away, it might be better to disguise themselves because if he did run away and he tried to hide thinking that he was in trouble, you know, if he seen a vehicle that he recognized, he would hide. Clearly, that's not the case. So what did you really use that rental car for? Yeah, I'm not really sure um, that would have been my go-to story. Right. Um, I think it's a little difficult for anyone to imagine that was logically where anyone's person, like anyone's brain went to. Right. But even if that was the case, um, I think it's going to be very difficult to explain the amount of mileage she put on that vehicle. Yeah, so let's just uh, touch on that real quick. So it was a white Kia Rio. And it was essentially brand new. When she picked it up at 8.30 that morning, it had five miles on it. Brand new car. It's a rental. You, you'll find that. When she brought it back, the mileage was at 960 miles, meaning she put on 955 miles in the 20 hours that the car was in her possession because she took it back the 29th at around like 1.20 in the afternoon. So... I'm just going to go back on her words saying that she went door to door. When I say, when I think door to door, I think residential. Most residential right. speed limits are going to be 30 miles an hour, 35, if you're lucky. There is no way possible she put on that amount of miles in that short amount of time driving around residentially looking for Gannon. I 25 is so close to her. I mean, or even, I mean, who knows how far she could have gone in that amount of time. When you look at the amount of mileage plus how long she had the vehicle, I don't think anyone who takes a look at a map of the state of Colorado doesn't think, well, hey, there are three other neighboring states within a couple hours drive 
of right. Colorado Springs. Right. Um, so I don't think it would be outside of the realm of possibility that maybe Gannon is in another state. Right. That's what I was looking into. I, you know, I was thinking, gosh, New Mexico, especially from right. Colorado Springs. I mean, you head south, you hit New Mexico rather, I mean, within a few hours. So she could have drove him to New Mexico or she could have hopped on I-25 and headed up north kind of in our realm where it's open plains. And I think even then round trip, you're still going to be under well under 900 miles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I tried to kind of like do a little investigation work on my own on Google Maps and kind of like, I mean, give or take, let's let's knock off 200 miles that her and Al were searching. Al clearly wasn't with her that entire 28 hours. So, I mean, I tried to point it out. Who well, really knows where? where. I think it's important to note, I don't think she would risk going into a more metro area. When you start hitting I-25, E-470, all major interstates, highways in Colorado, you increase the risk that you're going to be caught by some type of license plate reader, you're going to be caught by, you know, a red light camera, Mm -hmm. all things that could definitively put her in a neighborhood, which may very easily dispute her argument that she was around home trying to look for him right and i think that she thought that you know she could disguise herself by getting a rental and that you know somehow people weren't going to find out that she rented this car in her own name it takes from what i've heard it takes a lot of mental energy to put together a murder so i can imagine a couple of things slip through the cracks absolutely yeah so and then i also watched um like a live stream And I'll just tell you guys briefly about it because if you guys are interested, you can go check out this YouTube channel and kind of watch it for yourself. But um, a neighbor that is in the same neighborhood or a resident in the same neighborhood and she has remained anonymous, she was a guest on a YouTube stream on the channel Critical K with um, K-A-Y, like K Jewelers. Um, And she was on the phone and she kind of went into the dynamic of the neighborhood um, up until this point and kind of how the neighbors were acting, how Tisha was acting. If she knew Tisha, she said that, you know, she didn't know her personally. She at one point had bought an item or some kind of product or something from Tisha and that was pretty much it. But she went into saying how Tisha was just nonchalant. She didn't attend any of the neighborhood searches she her story was inconsistent from the get-go um and so I think that the neighborhood kind of got that vibe very early on in the investigation um and then Tisha did go on to give an interview and I believe it was a three-part interview with crime online and you can find that at crimeonline.com Um, and so she gave an interview, which was pretty much just nothing of importance, but a clap back to every single allegation made against her. If somebody threw something out, she had a way to dispute it. She had, you know, an explanation for it. She had an explanation, I mean, as for why 
this was even brought up. I mean, she disputed the neighbor's security footage saying that, you know, she didn't back her pickup into the driveway when she came home that Monday. So it clearly must have been from the wrong day and time. And then um, she said that she had left her phone at home that day on that Monday. But it just so happens that previously she had said that, well, I have proof that Gannon came home with me because we took a picture in the driveway. She just said it. They were in the driveway. She took a picture. She had her phone. You just went back on your story. (laughs) Right. Now, I will say, of course, she is innocent until proven guilty. Um, I think one of the things true crime has kind of brought out for all of us is no two people respond to a tragedy the same way. Right. There's no quote-unquote right way to grieve. Um, We see that some parents get very emotional. Some Mm -hmm. parents get very withdrawn. Um, So it's possible that her reactions are normal. Right. Maybe she was so distraught over his disappearance. She couldn't bring herself to be involved in, you know, the search parties and things like that. Right. Now, I think what kind of cuts against her are some of her unusual behaviors, Um, You would expect someone who is so distraught about this missing child um, would not go and get a rental car, (laughs) would not make themselves, you know, unavailable for comment when, when we're talking about law enforcement or wouldn't feel the need to nitpick every single statement being made right. about her right. would willingly offer up proof that this right. was the last time I saw him. Right. He was fine. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, but I think that's also kind of our human nature. We want to believe that people would readily try and prove their innocence. Right. Um, but that's really, really difficult. How do you prove you didn't do something? Right. Which is why we, we don't build our system like that. Other countries do, but... Um, it's entirely possible, and as a prosecutor, as a lawyer, I have to assume that she's innocent, but I also have great faith that Dan May knows what he's doing when he charged her. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, I kind of wanted to touch base on this because I had just read this today. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that Harley, the 17-year-old daughter, had brought had been brought in for questioning. I don't know if that's in Colorado. don't know if that's in South Carolina. I had heard that she had been brought into questioning and that they were kind of in speculation. Now, the surveillance video that we got to see clearly is fuzzy. It's not the good, clear video, I'm guessing, that law enforcement has. Um, but the security footage, the footage is in question if that was even Gannon at all that morning coming out. Supposedly there was a hood up. It could have been Harley. She could have. Um, I don't, I personally don't think that Harley would have been the one to injure Gannon, but they also, Harley and her mom, Tisha also had like a, a speculation has said, or people in the neighborhood have said that they had a more, best friend relationship than mother-daughter she you know came supposedly came home 
that Sunday after the hike, she was there, which means that she would have been there into the evening and the night. And then she also came home Monday afternoon. So it kind of makes you wonder what Harley, if Harley was involved somehow, if she was pressured or kind of just thrown into a corner um, or what she knew and that she didn't disclose to law enforcement. So, and she's 17 years old, so not quite 18 yet. She's set to be leaving for the Air Force soon. I imagine we're coming up on the end of a school year here in May. So, I mean, she's pretty close to starting her own life and then this happens and I can't help but, but question, but then also feel completely terrible for her that this is, um, how everything turned out. I mean, Tisha didn't just ruin her own life, but she took away Gannon's life. She took away two parents' son and a grandson and a friend and a brother and a neighbor. And um, she ruined a lot of people's lives. Yeah, and I think what's interesting when we talk about Harley, unfortunately, I think that's kind of the best case scenario. Now, when you look at worst case scenario that she knew what was going on, or that even worse than that, she was involved, this dramatically changes her life, mm-hmm. changes um, maybe the focus of the investigation, Right. as terrible as it sounds. If they think they can make some headway with her, maybe she can give them the crucial pieces of their case that they're missing right now. Right. You never want to be put in a position where you ask a child to testify against their parent, but I can guarantee you if they think that will be beneficial, it is something that will not be ruled out. Right. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I wonder, too, up until the day that today that I heard this, you know, if Albert and, you know, the biological mom of Gannon, Landon, were going to be adamant and being there available for Harley. I don't know. Um, who her biological dad is. It's not Albert um, or kind of how that family dynamic is. But, you know, I had questioned, you know, if Albert would continue to be supportive to her. And I think that they will um, until I guess that, you know, everybody gets to the bottom of what happened either that night, what happened that day. Right. And where's Gannon? Right. Now, it'll be interesting if she ends up being connected to anything that happened. Uh, One of the difficulties becomes that she's not 18. Right. So under Colorado law, she would be charged as a juvenile. Right. Um, There are, in certain circumstances, if they believe it's appropriate, even though she is a juvenile, they could still prosecute her and treat her as an adult. Um, It's a much more... Not difficult, but it's a more lengthy process to be able to do that. Right. Um, so if she were involved in anything, and if she gets charged, um, she has more protective rights than her mom does, mm-hmm. simply because she would be a child. Right. Um, the type of penalties that she's looking at, certainly, I think it would be, barring something crazy, I think it would be very unusual to expect she would be facing life in life in prison. Right. Um, it is unconstitutional in the U.S. to sentence a juvenile um, to death. So mm-hmm. she could not be executed. Right. Um, and she cannot automatically be sentenced to 
life without the possibility of parole. Right. Um, a judge would have to make certain findings um, and ultimately could if you believe right. that was appropriate. But um, by and large, she would face, unless they're treating her like an adult, she would be facing um, relatively minimal penalties. Right. She'd have the right to have these things um, potentially expunged, sealed. Um, Which frustrates know. me. It's it's a whole different ballgame when we start dealing with children. Right. Well, and who knows, I mean, how close she is to 18. Right. District attorney might wait until that day. Well, and it'll be, that may play into his decision about um, whether he charges her as an adult or whether, I guess, the more proper way to say that, whether he charges her as a juvenile and then they do what's called a reverse transfer hearing. And okay. then they transfer it back into adult court. Um, but if their belief is that she helped her mom or she participated in the crime while she was a juvenile, they would have to charge her mm-hmm. as a juvenile, regardless right. of what her current age is. Right, yeah. And I mean, I, I personally don't believe that she was involved in hurting Gannon, but I mean, she could be an accessory. She right. could have withheld information. She could have been involved in disposing of Gannon. Right. Helping with an alibi or being seen on that, you know, security footage. So, I don't know. But um, at the press conference, Landon did speak out. So, both parents were there. And um, I think Albert's mom was next to him. And then I think it was Landon's aunt next to her. And I thought that it was just so painful to watch. Um I did really enjoy seeing how much support that Al and Landon had for each other. They were even holding hands and like leaning on each other and crying with each other. But she spoke out and I just think that it is so worth you listening to. And I might even add a little clip to give you guys um, an example of, I guess, what she had to say. But um, I think that it's definitely worth taking a listen to. So I think that I am just as heartbroken as anybody else in this case. Um, Yesterday kind of put me in such a downer mood and I couldn't understand why. And so I have so much respect for law enforcement and investigators and all of the search parties and everybody behind the scenes that has been working this case around the clock because, um, I couldn't do it. I'm just a podcaster. I'm a realtor podcaster, but I've got two kids of my own and um, I felt it. Like, I mean, it's it's devastating. It yeah. is so devastating. And for why? That's what I want to know is why. Right. It's one of those things where, um, one of those things where you, you learn that there is real evil in the world. And even if, best case scenario, um, Tisha didn't actually do something physically to him. If he was just put in a situation that unfortunately led to his death, all of these lives have been damaged. Um, Obviously, luckily, I have not had to experience that. But from... The prosecution standpoint, I can tell you there's not a single person that gets involved in these 
that does not leave impacted. Right. Um, we think about these families. We think about what they're going through. And in the moments when you have to make the hard decisions, when you have to um, go before a jury and understand that it is your responsibility to put on the best case possible to right. get justice for these families, it's an unreal task. Right. And I cannot imagine what that whole community is going through, um, the strength that they are showing. And um, I, I hope, at least by now, they understand just how many people are supporting them. Uh, and, and yeah, Landon had voiced that, that um, she was just blown away by all of the support, not just in Colorado Springs, but the entire state and the nation that has um, has reached out and supported them and helping bring Gannon home. So, And I think that that will continue. Absolutely. So, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for joining this episode. I did episode. want to mention, not that they're any less important, the other two guys on death row yeah. in Colorado. Robert J. Um, and then Sir Mario Owens. The reason they don't get talked about a lot, they both still have appeals that are pending. Mm. Um, so, so what did these two So Robert do? J. Um, was actually on trial or about to be on trial for another murder. Um, and he had two witnesses killed so that way they couldn't testify against him. Oh, goodness. Right. Um, so that was, um, that was in, let's see, 2004. Oh. 2004, 2005 is, um, when his killings happened. He is still in the appeals process. And then Sir Mario Owen, um, was convicted of a murder for someone in 2007, um, then the next year, he was convicted of another set of killings. And so basically, it sounds like the second set of murders are what got him the death penalty. Wow. And those are still being appealed as we speak. Wow. So, I'm going to have mm-hmm. to look into those and maybe do those in a future yeah. episode. Yeah. Because those were a lot more recent er, yeah. than I had thought. 2007, 2008. Hmm. So. What is it with Colorado right now? Like, can we just not do anything crazy from here on out? Can we just, like, I don't, I don't feel lay like low? If our last... Well, okay. Then we have bad news <laughs> shooting. I was going to say, if our last crazy thing was 2007, we're not doing too bad. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I think we're kind of just... A little cray. Seeing it all over the place. Don't drink the water. Though, granted, I'm a little bit jaded. I see crazy every day at work, so... <laughs> I do too. I do Different too. Different kinds of crazy. I see a lot of crazy in a seven and four year old. So there you go. Lord help me. <laughs> that wraps it up for this week's episode. If you liked this episode, be sure to go share with your friends and family and go drop me a review over on Apple podcast. That really helps my podcast out a ton. Go follow me on Facebook and Instagram at pocketful of crime. I post additional content, pictures, and announcements over there. As always, thank you so much for listening and join me back next Wednesday for my newest episode. Until next time, stay weird, my friends. Oh, and one more thing. Hi, mom. Mm -hmm.